1: It is my pleasure and honor this evening to introduce our guest speaker. Since her college years at Howard University, Mary Frances Berry has been one of the most visible activists in the cause of civil rights, gender equality, and social justice in our nation. Serving as chairperson of the U.S. Civil Rights Commission, Berry demanded an equal rights and liberties for all Americans during four presidential administrations. A pathbreaker, she also became the interim chairperson of the Division of Behavioral and Social Sciences, and she served as the provost for this division, thus becoming the highest ranking African American woman on the University of Maryland's College Park campus. And she was the first African American woman to head a major research university serving at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Barry also was the first African-American woman to serve as the principal education officer, official in the U.S. Department of Health, Education and Welfare, working to improve access and quality education in our schools. In recognition of her scholarship and public service, Professor Barry has received 35 honorary doctorate degrees and many awards, including the NAACP's Roy Wilkins Award, the Rosa Parks Award of, of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and the Ebony Magazine Black Achievement Award. She is one of 75 women featured in I Dream a World Portraits of Black Women Who Changed America. And um, she and she is also in the synagogue. College Research Institute and in the Women's Hall of Fame designated her one of America's Women of the Century. In 1990 to 91, she was president of the Organization of American Historians. She is fellow of the Society of American Historians, and the National Academy of Public Administration, and is a distinguished fellow of the American Society for Legal History. She is a recipient of the Roy. Rosenweig Distinguished Service Award of the Organization of American Historians. In 2013, she was one of the recipients of the Nelson Mandela Award from the South African Government for her role in organizing the Free South African Movement, which helped to end apartheid. She was selected to speak at the South African Government representing FSAM, at the National Celebration of the Life, Legacy, and Values of Nelson Mandela at the Washington National Cathedral in December 2013. Barry's publications include such subjects as the History of Constitutional Racism in America and Child Care and Women's Rights. She is a fellow of the Society of American Historians and the National Academy of Public Administration. In 2014, she was named a Distinguished Fellow of the American Society for Legal History, the highest honor the society can award. And since 1988, she has been the Geraldine R. Siegel Professor of American Social Thought, History, and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Barry has written over 12 books, and she continues her research, writing, and activism. She insists that each generation has the responsibility to make a dent in the wall of injustice. In her latest book, History Teaches Us to Resist, how progressive movements have succeeded in challenging times. She recounts many of the protests in which she was active, analyzes their organizing strategies, and considers the lessons we can learn from them. Please join me in giving Dr. Mary Frances Berry a great welcome from the Pratt Library and the citizens of Baltimore, Maryland. Thank you very
2: much. First of all, I guess I'm short, so I have to put this down. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I had a very interesting day. I was in Washington, D.C., and I came on the train and I was going to be uh, here by midday so I could be on uh, the uh, Public Radio's midday show and talk about the book. And 10 minutes outside watching Washington, the train broke down. Oh, that's And uh, I've had all kinds of things happen on trains all the time that I've been taking it, but this one, the engine stopped. And we, they wouldn't even let us off the train, of course, even though we were 10 minutes outside of the city. Um, and first they said they were going to take us off, and then they said they couldn't find another train, and then they you know the routine. And finally they said they had to bring in a new engine, a rescue engine. I knew what that would be. I said the rescue engine would probably break down. But the long and short of it was that we were on the train two and a half hours trying to get from <laughs> D.C. To, to Baltimore. But we made it, and when I got here, I recorded uh, an interview with uh, the uh, Tom who does the Midday Show, which he's going to broadcast the next time, the whole hour, uh, talking about asking me questions about the book. And it turns out that he had actually read it. Uh, many people who interviewed me haven't read, you know, anything, uh, but he said he was on a plane going to LA and had the book and needed something to read, so he read the whole book uh, and he uh, had good questions. Anyway. What I am talking about uh, in this book, first I'm going to tell you why I wrote the book. And then after I tell you why I wrote the book, then I'm going to tell you what's in it. And then I'm going to tell you what I think we can learn from it. Um, And that's, and where do we go and what relevance it has for these times. Uh, The reason why I wrote the book is right after the election in 2016, I had several uh, speaking engagements, uh, which were already set up, Um, and the people that I went to speak to in various places around the country were uh, preparing for a celebration. It was supposed to be a celebration of the first woman president being elected. That's what they were gearing up for and they asked me to come talk about things like the history of women and why now this is so great and whatever, and they had parties planned and they had all this stuff planned. And I, of course, went to speak anyway because I was supposed to go speak. And when I got there, of course, there was nothing except mourning going on (laughs) in all these places. And uh, at the little dinner that we would have before my speech, and I, they, each person on the board of these things had to tell me how they felt and how sad they were and why they were sad and so on and what they were doing on election night. Um, and then I had to, they wanted me to comment on what each one of them said. <laughs> so by the time I finished doing that several times, I was very sad, sadder than I was before, <laughs> before I went. And then I thought about it when I got ready to speak and, and I thought, well, I don't know what they're going to do, but they can't sit around mourning, you know, forever. Um, As my mother uh, would say at times like that, you should get up off your do-nothing stool and go do something rather than sitting around crying. Uh, But in any case, I didn't tell them that. (laughs) Then uh, a few weeks later, my editor uh, called me and said, you have to write a book. (laughs) I said, I have already written 12 books, and I'm not writing any more books. I already told you that. Uh, and I've written two with you and several with Knobb and this and Oxford and so on and she said well this book I've I decided is what needs to be written now and it's about how history shows that we can bounce back from these times and what strategies other people have used <laughs> and what we can do now and it will inspire people well I thought it might have been needed back then but it took me a year to research it and write it, and I'm not sure it's needed now because the resistance uh, goes on, but maybe it is because uh, it's, there's not enough um, going on uh, in my opinion. And even though historians are always saying you can learn nothing from history, and a famous philosopher said once well, that the only thing you learn from history is that you learn nothing from history. I think you do learn something Uh, because human beings uh, have the same kind of instincts um, throughout human history. I mean, there's greed and jealousy and all these things uh, that are in common even though times change and no period is exactly like any other. So I think there is something to be learned. So I said no about three times that I wasn't going to write it. And then I asked several friends of mine, I bored people to death at dinner parties and receptions and whatever, saying, do you think I should write this book? And everybody said, yes, you should write it right now. Mm -hmm. Go research it, go write it. Her view was, since I am a scholar and know how to research stuff, uh, and since I had some experiences in some of these social movements, that I would be an ideal person to do so. I finally decided I would write it. Then the question was what to write and what approach to take. And then I thought, what I really will be talking about is what we all did. What I mean by what we all did is that most of the people that I speak to and that I talk to, and most of the people who are in the, quote, resistance, unquote, have been engaged in some of these social movements. And so it's what we all did. Uh, and we may not have been so introspective about what we were doing at the time we were doing it, but we did it. And to and part of what has happened since I wrote it, Sherrilyn Eiffel, who used to teach here at the University of Baltimore Law School and runs in ACPLDF, and who has a nice blurb of the book, and I'm on a board, too, have been on the board forever, she said, you know, what it reminded me of was things I did. I forgot I did that. <laughs> And so when I started reading, I said, oh, yeah, I remember what we did. Whatever. So we don't need to be depressed at things that we did and things that we could do. So the question is, what did we do and how did we do it? The first thing that I wrote about in the first chapter was not something that we all did together because it was before I was doing anything. And it was A. Philip Randolph's Marjo Washington movement in 1941. And I put that in there because on the one hand, A. Philip Randolph is one of those overlooked leaders. People don't talk about him as much as I think they should. Uh, And the other thing is that the movement was very instructive, and the people who were involved in it learned a whole lot, which they used in all the movements that took place after that in the later civil rights movement, including the March on Washington in 1963, which Randolph was a prime mover uh, in that. And the lessons that they learned about what worked and what didn't work and how did they do it and whatever. Now, the March on Washington movement was much harder to organize than the 63 March and easier than some that had taken place. There have been marches going on in American history as long as anybody can remember, uh, whether it was veterans trying to get pensions or whatever going on, but in most cases, marches didn't result in any policy change. Even though people protested and they marched, they didn't get what they were trying to get have done. Uh, the March on Washington is an example of people succeeding in getting a policy change. In fact, it was the first march that ended up with a policy change. It was the issue of whether blacks could get jobs working in the defense industry during World War II or be discriminated against and excluded from what were good jobs. And Franklin Roosevelt, who I call a friendly president because he was supposed to be friendly to these issues, uh, didn't want to end discrimination in the defense industry. Why didn't he want to do it? He didn't want to do it, one, because Southern Democrats controlled the committees in Congress, and Democrats were the racist party at that time in the South, and he had to work with these people, and he didn't want to do anything to upset them. Secondly, he didn't think the issue was that important. Uh, He had to be persuaded that it was really important. But then, Eleanor Roosevelt and A. Philip Randolph and the other civil rights folks met with Roosevelt several times. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt managed to get them meetings Uh, and he listened and one time he acted like he was going to do something and they went out thinking he was going to and he implied that they should just stay quiet and not say anything to the press so they went out and they didn't and then he didn't say anything (laughs) so they were really quite upset about that but the march and Roosevelt apocryphally they say told him you have to make me do it we don't have a note saying that I can't give you a citation that says that, but that you have to make me do it. And Thomas Dewey was running against Roosevelt and was trying to get black voters in the North to vote for him, which helped uh, a little bit. But it was a march when Eleanor Roosevelt and other staffers went around the country and they saw that people were actually prepared to march. They weren't just talking. They had rented buses, you know, And they had raised housing, the women in the brotherhood, the wives of the sleeping car porters, had arranged places for people to stay when they came to Washington. The whole thing was very well organized in every city and they could count how many people were supposed to be coming from each place and all the rest. So she came back and said, and so did the other staffers, this is real, these people are coming, and they're coming on this day, and I don't know what you're going to do when they get here, and do you want them all coming to Washington? Because you don't know how long they're going to stay, or what they're going to do when they get here, and what trouble is going to be caused. And so he went ahead and under that threat made that policy change, first time a march, and a march that didn't happen, ended up making this. What it was leverage that was used. This is an example of using leverage in the right way to get a policy change made. And the people, Randolph himself and the women, women were very instrumental in the work which is true of almost everything uh, of the march. And they all learned how to do this and what the pitfalls were and all the rest which they used later on in the uh, the prayer pilgrimage which took place in 50... uh, after that in 57 and other marches and the March on Washington movement in 63. The one thing they did learn was that they should let women speak at the march, but they didn't learn that. But anyway, that was it. Uh, so that's an example. The next example that I used was the anti-Vietnam war movement. And I had some trepidation about writing about that at first. One because I didn't want to remember <laughs> some of the things that happened and I was a student at Michigan, University of Michigan, and I was in the anti-war movement, and I got involved in it after Martin Luther King's uh, Riverside Church uh, speech, in which he talked about the relationship between civil rights and economic justice and what was going on in Vietnam and most of us who were there were supportive of the civil rights movement and raised money for SNCC and people did all the civil rights stuff but also the anti-war movement and there was a connection between the two and I said to myself one day I want to go to Vietnam and see what's going on because the media was reporting things like we were winning the war and this was happening and that was happening and we didn't believe it and so I wrote a letter to the Defense Department and said, how do you, can I go to Vietnam? Are there any rules about whether you can go there or not? And they said, wrote back, uh, no email in those days, and said, no you can't go. And in fact, the only people who can go are military, dependents can't even go, military can go and reporters. So I went back again and said, well, how do you get to be a reporter? (laughs) And they said a reporter must have at least 100,000 subscribers. They were thinking about print media, obviously, uh, in those days, or the radio or something. And so I figured out that I needed 100,000 subscribers. So I went over to the Michigan Daily, the student newspaper, and said, how many subscribers do you guys have? (laughs) They said 30,000-something. So I said, you want a war correspondent? They said, who? I said, me. <laughs> they said, oh, OK. Uh, students run newspaper. And so they wrote me a letter saying I was their war correspondent. And then I had 30, so then I needed more. So then I went around to all the little towns around Ann Arbor and asked the editors at the newspaper, could I be their war correspondent? And they said, oh, we don't have any money. I said, no, I know that. I just want you to write a letter saying I'm your war correspondent and how many subscribers you have. And I got a whole fistful of those and I sent them off to the Defense Department and said I wanna go because I'm representing these newspapers and they sent me credentials, which I still So then I had a problem because I didn't have any way to get to, to Vietnam and I didn't have any money to go to Vietnam, so I had to go around and beg from people to get money so I could buy a ticket. And I went and the, they told me at the Defense Department when you go, you can, when you're out in the field, and you can go anywhere you want to in Vietnam. They didn't embed people like they do now, reporters. Uh, and, you know, if you can hitch a ride or get on the plane, whatever, if people let you come and follow them, whatever, it's up to you, go wherever you want to. And uh, when you're out in the field, you can sleep wherever the officers sleep, you know, wherever their house. When you're in Saigon, you're on your own. Um, so I got on the plane, and I went through Guam, and, and when I was on the plane, a the whole bunch of real reporters were on the plane. <laughs> like from ABC and NBC and all the rest New York Times, you know, and they said, who are you representing? And I said, well, <laughs> Michigan Daily, and, uh, and they said, and I said, I'm not really a reporter, they just thought that was funny. Uh, And they said, oh, you'll be all right. And so when I got to Vietnam, I went down and got my fatigues and my boots and my uh, helmet and all that stuff. And they assigned a uh, slightly obese, huffy-puffy sergeant to me. And they said, this guy's going to go with you everywhere you go, and he's going to try to keep you from getting killed. That's his role. And I thought, he can't even keep up with it. <laughs> and uh, Dickie Chappelle, who was a Life Magazine photographer, a woman, American woman, uh, who had a Pulitzer. She was a rather fascinating person. If you don't know about her, sometimes look her up. She stepped on a landmine shortly before I was there, and was killed. And so they were worried that I was, uh, and I didn't meet any other. There were American reporters who came after that and so on, but I didn't meet any other. I met a couple of people from Paris Match uh, Magazine in France, but I didn't see any Anyway, um, so I went out uh, in the field, and I was everywhere in Vietnam from down at the bottom all the way up to the DMC, and I was with every branch of the service. And um, it was an interesting experience, although some of it was rather gory. Uh, the most, uh, uh, the worst, most tragic one was up on the border, the DMZ, where the Marines were at a place called Conti Inn, where there were uh, mortars coming in all the time, continuously, all the time, all the time, and you, we were in bunkers. And down below us, the engineers were building a fence because McNamara thought if he, they built a fence across the DMZ, the Vietnamese wouldn't be able to come across. And so the guys, while they were digging and building fortifications, the they were being shot at all the time—snipers and everything else. It was rather uh, distressing. And the other thing that I mentioned that in the book, the whole the chapter is not about me, but I'm telling you that that what happened, but is the grunts that I talked to, the soldiers who was, I was young, and they were younger than me. And one in particular, I remember a young black guy, and he said to me, you know, you write down what I say when I talk to you. That's amazing. He said, you have that notebook, and you write down what I say. He said, I talk to reporters, they come through here all the time, and they never write down what anybody says. He says, how is anybody going to remember me? Because I'll be gone. And no one will ever remember me. And they'll write down what I say. And I told him, and I feel so sorry for him. And he said, I said, well, i will only to write down what you say because I'm new and I don't really know how to be a reporter and so I have to write it down. And I said, they've been reporters for years. They'll remember everything you told them. And I'll remember you and they'll remember you. He said, are you sure? I mean, the whole thing was just so, and I met so many guys who didn't, they didn't understand the context or why they were there. They knew they were in the service, but they weren't really sure what this all was supposed to be about. Um, But anyway, when I was writing, when I forced myself to sit down and write it, I did the research that I had not done because I abandoned thinking about Vietnam for years. Um, And I found out that I thought we had failed, that this was a movement that failed. I was gonna put it in the category of things that didn't work. And then I found out that it succeeded. Uh, Because I didn't know that after we had uh, had such a great uh, resistance movement and the military had done what it had done, that the North Vietnamese were coming I mean, to the peace table uh, in 1968, before the election. And it wasn't just that we got Johnson to not run again, but they there was a peace uh, negotiation set, and it was Nixon, who, mm-hmm. as he put it himself, monkey wrenched it, mm-hmm. that Nixon uh, told H.R. Haldeman, who was one of his assistants, to go out and monkey wrench it, and they got together with operatives that they knew in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Chinese people that they had been dealing with for a long time and went to the Vietnamese, North Vietnamese and told them that if they didn't come to the meetings and um, diss the Democrats, that the Democrats would lose the election and then Nixon said he would give them a better deal so they should just wait until he got, got elected. And so they then told the Johnson people they weren't coming when they were supposed to come and they were prepared to make peace. And the sad part about that is so many more people died. Thousands of our own military died after that before the war was over. And so many refugees were killed, uh, had abandoned their homes, uh, families uh, destroyed, and everything else uh, just because uh, he wanted to win the election. So I consider it in the category of a... Uh, successful movement and not a failure. And then I moved on to the years of Ronald Reagan. Most people don't know anything about Reagan except that he has an airport named after him, some buildings in different places, he had a sunny disposition, and he is a hero of Republicans who talk about him all the time, even if they don't know anything about him, uh, as their great guy that everybody wants to be about. And many of us who struggled against him have forgotten the struggle. Because now we say, oh, nobody's ever been as bad as Trump. Oh! On every issue you can think of, uh, Reagan was just as bad. The only difference was that he smiled a lot, he was quiet, and all the rest, and had a sunny disposition. Uh, If you add it up on civil rights issues generally, they did what we call turning back the clock. Started his election in the Shoba County in Mississippi where the three civil rights workers were murdered, that's where he announced his candidacy and said, he and assured Southerners that he was on their side, white Southerners, as he ran for election. And then once he got elected, what did he do? The Justice Department and his Attorney General announced that they were not going to enforce the Voting Rights Act. (laughs) They were not going to enforce affirmative action. They weren't going to enforce all this stuff. Uh, And what did he do next? He fired people from the Civil Rights Commission because he wanted to get his own mouthpieces on the commission even though it was an independent uh, uh, agency because they said, and i documented all this in another book I wrote in the papers uh, and so on, in the archives. Uh, they said that they were gonna use it to persuade the American people in terms of propaganda that what they were doing was the right thing if they could put their people in there, uh, that they would be able to do that. He did all that. Uh, uh, The AIDS crisis throughout his administration, he refused to talk about it, do anything about it, until his buddy, Rock Hudson, uh, died from AIDS, and then finally he uttered the word that he never would utter. Uh, he and George Herbert Walker Bush, his Vice President, who became President, in fact, uh, interfered with uh, trying to get the uh, medication, the AIDS medicine that was uh, you know, created uh, to people on a basis that they could afford to pay for it and distribute, wouldn't even talk about it, and ACT UP and other LBGT uh, organizations had to engage in guerrilla tactics and all kinds of things at the White House and at the pharmaceutical industry and all the rest to get this done. On issues like the environment, we forget. We talk about this guy Pruitt over in uh, in the Trump administration and all the regulations that have been destroyed and this and that and the other. Doonesbury had columns all the time about the Environmental Protection Agency and how they were gutting all the environment rules. Uh, Cartoons showed. Uh, career employees jumping out the window because they couldn't stand it anymore, committing suicide because it was so terrible over there. And Ann Gorsuch who was the mother of Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch, who Trump appointed, was the major person who was involved in this and she was the first cabinet officer, cabinet rank, to not uh, respond positively to a subpoena of Congress to talk about it and was held in contempt. And all of that stuff, people have totally forgotten about it even though environment uh, and the EPA was set up by Republicans. It was Richard Nixon's administration that in fact set up the uh, EPA. So Reagan did all these things and the civil rights groups fought back on the civil rights issues. They fought back, they got laws passed by using grassroots people and mobilizing them and working with members of Congress, key people, got laws passed to reverse a lot of the civil rights stuff that they did. I went to court and sued Reagan and beat him in court because he told the press that he fired me because I served him his pleasure and wasn't giving him any pleasure.
3: <laughs> um,
2: they said, but what do you mean by that? Uh, and I said, what do you mean? Anyway, uh, the, um, uh, they got laws passed to reverse a lot of the stuff he did, And what did he do? I call it winning while losing. What did he do? He appointed judges. He successfully appointed judges to the federal courts who overturned most of it. They overturned most of the things that the groups got because people did what people always do, is once they got a legislative victory, they went away and said, oh, we solved that problem. And the other folks said, wait, we can figure out how to do something about that. As uh, A. Philip Randolph says in that quote I have in the first chapter, justice is a constant struggle. Maintaining it, there's an evolution in these things. And in fact, when you get a victory, the other side turns around and tries to figure out how to defeat what you just got, which means you got away. But what did Jefferson say? Eternal vigilance is the price of liberty uh, and justice. And so people forget that when they have a The other thing that I did was to include in it the Free South Africa Movement, which many people have forgotten about. And some people in this town, and maybe some of you, uh, were uh, involved in it. Because what we were doing was speaking for people who couldn't speak for themselves. There are plenty of problems in this country. You don't have to go to someplace else to work on problems. But the people in South Africa who were leading the movement against apartheid and who were worried about all the people who were detained and were killed by the regime, asked us, Uh, those of us who had been advocates on Southern African causes to do something to help them to get sanctions so that the United States would stop trading with South Africa and that that might help to overturn the government and bring it down. That's why we did it. And so what we did was to organize a movement to do it. And we were opposed at every hand. Reagan was absolutely opposed to it. He wanted to maintain the regime. He kept saying... They're the only barrier to communism taking over all of Africa. That was his argument. Communists will come uh, if you overturn apartheid. So we have to leave apartheid in place, just like it is. Uh, and so we had to uh, fight that. And we, the way we organized the movement and what we did, uh, we learned a lot about it. Uh, we spent a year and a half doing demonstrations of various kinds, going to jail, having other people go to jail. And the movement grew from just a few people to everybody—celebrities and the heavyweight champion—and anybody whose name had been mentioned once in the press uh, came and got arrested with us. Both at the embassy, we closed down Shell Oil headquarters because they were privy uh, and working with the regime. Uh, we closed down the sale of Krugerrands because people were buying them and didn't know why or what they were, and the South African government is using the revenue. Uh, We had marches, but not just marches, and we finally, after a year and a half of meeting at my house every morning and then going out and having protests of some kind or other every single day, we got a bill passed in Congress with bipartisan support, and Reagan vetoed it. And when he vetoed it, guess what we did? We just kept right on meeting at my house in the morning and having protests all around the country, students on college campuses, built shantytowns, and people went to jail and other places, and there were chapters all over the country until we passed it over his veto. And we were so committed that when Reagan was reelected, it was so cold that uh, uh, they didn't have the the parade that they usually had because it was too cold. But we were out, With our protests, with people getting arrested on the coldest day that anybody had. Every single time, the press could count on like clockwork. At 5 o'clock, there'll be people arrested at the embassy. And there'll either be celebrities or there'll be huge numbers. Every single day. And to do that every single day for a year and a half is not easy. It's not easy, especially when you have a job. I mean, I was teaching, I'd run teaching, I'd come back, do this, do it. That was not my job. Okay, so I put that one in. Then with George Herbert Walker Bush, who was a sort of preppy guy, Mr. Nice Guy, not like, and um, quiet, much quieter than uh, Reagan. Not a sunny disposition though, and he's still around. The main one there, there are other uh, movements, is the one to get the Americans with Disabilities Act. Mm -hmm. The Americans with Disabilities Act movement was one of the best organized movements um they had had, the people who organized it, had had some experience in the 70s. There was a law passed in 1973 called the Rehabilitation Act. And it is the one that said that they had to be have accessible buildings and so on. That's before ADA, but at least that was in the law. Um, and Joe Califano, who was AGW secretary, refused to issue any regulations for it and you can't enforce it unless you have regulations. So if you don't (laughs) issue it, it was passed in the last years of the Nixon administration, bipartisan, but Joe would not issue the regulations. A lot of business people didn't want them issued and he was dragging his feet. And the disabled people, a group of them, came to the HEW headquarters building where Joe was, and I was because I was running education at that time in the Carter administration, and sat in in the building. And when they sat in in the building, they also sent people to all the regional offices to sit in. These are disabled people in wheelchairs. they are on canes and crutches. Some of them are blind. And they sat in these buildings all over the country and said, we're going to stay here until you sign these regulations. And he still wouldn't sign the regulations, and he didn't even want us to give them any water to drink. He said, put them out of the building. What are they going to do with it? and he had all of us up in his conference room and he was scared of them. I said, why are you scared of these disabled people? What are they going to do to you? Finally, they sent a group to his house and went to his house and said, we're staying over here outside your house until you sign And finally, Joe signed the regs. A lot of the people who organized the movement during George Herbert Walker Bush had been in the movement and had done the action that they did with Joe. So if they had experience for what had happened. And they could tell the other people how they did it, what they did, or whatever. And that's really valuable stuff to tell people and to know that. And so this time, they had protests around all the different places, pushing the levers of power. And at the last minute, when it was passed in the house, and looked like it wasn't gonna pass, a um, young girl who uh, was disabled and was in a wheelchair got out of, they were protesting up the Capitol, got out of her wheelchair, slid out of her wheelchair onto the Capitol steps and crawled all the way up every single step in the Capitol. It took her forever to get up there. By then, you know, the media was everywhere. And then they had crawl-ins. The Congress, everything stopped. And they passed the bill. It was one of the most effective Protests that ever, and just recently the Congress has tried to uh, dilute some of the protections mm-hmm. in ADA. and My view is that they need to have another uh, protest. So, we talk about a lot, of, I talked about a number of things, but that was a very effective.
3: Sleeping on park since Saturday. What? There's people that have been sleeping on parks. Oh, really?
2: Good, yeah. good. That's they great.
3: It's across the street from uh, the FDA director <laughs>
2: okay all right I'll take a look. okay thank you for that yeah I'm glad I'm always <laughs> glad I'm in the
3: yeah I can
2: understand that I understand that So anyway, I talk about all these different things and then during George oh, W Bush who in my view stole the election in 2000 uh, and I know that because I held hearings there and subpoenaed witnesses including his brother Jeb and Who's that woman? Catherine Harris, yeah. He was the Secretary of State and all those people, and who kept people from voting even though they were uh, legal voters. But he, uh, the, the anti war movement in his administration, the anti Iraq war movement, in my view, got started late. But it was very, very effective for highlighting the issue, and it couldn't stop the war. It got started late and they were smart because they used color Powell to tell the lie that he told at the UN about weapons of mass destruction oh and one other, marches, marches so here's what we learned here are the things we learned from all these things we learned that first of all you should focus on policy and only focus on people if it's an aid of your policy focus in other words, just focusing on a person is not a movement I hate Trump is not a movement. I mean, it's okay, I feel better when I say I hate Trump. But that's not a movement, okay? Because what's the policy I'm talking about? And which one am I going after? And what's the issue? I just hate him, okay? Uh, So that's the first thing you learn, that you ought to focus on some issue, some policy, whatever. And you ought to make it simple. It ought to be simple something that you can just say and everybody knows what you're talking about and don't have too many issues i'm thinking about the very important work that the kids are doing with the gun control uh, protests which is absolutely important stuff but they got too many issues they need to say somebody needs to figure out what is the one big thing we want and say that over and over and over again there may be other things they want too But the one big thing, and after you get the one big thing, then you can talk about the others. But if you talk about six or seven things, then people will cherry-pick from the six or seven things that you said. Well, you said you wanted this, and then you said you wanted that, and what do you really want, and what do you want? You know, we said freedom, yes, apartheid, no. That's all. We don't have anything. We just, you know. Well, do you want constructive engagement, or do you want freedom, yes, apartheid, no. That's all we want. I mean, that's what you say. Um, And Randolph, what did he say? We just want blacks to be able to work in the defense industry. We want jobs, period. Jobs, defense industry. Well, do you want to desegregate the armed forces? Well, they did want to desegregate the armed forces, but they wanted to get the jobs in the defense industry, so make it simple. The other thing is the importance of media. If the media doesn't cover you, you haven't done anything. You might as well not have done it if nobody knows that you did it. The whole purpose is for people to know that you did it because you're trying to inspire other people and you're trying to get more people to do something and you gotta get attention paid to the issue. And you have to use the media in ways that will make it continue to respond to what you do. You can't just keep doing the same thing over and over again unless you do it in ways. An example of that, marches by themselves, like a march, doesn't get you what you want. Doing a march. Like the women's march that took place after the inauguration was great, it was fantastic. But that march didn't change any policy. Now, it didn't. In fact, um, it, um, it inspired a lot of people to run for office and do things and whatever, but it didn't change any policy. The only march I can remember, uh, a real march, not one that didn't happen, like Randolph's, marches that did change policy, the pro-choice marches of the 1980s, early 1990s, because they were in waves and big, and there were like two or three or four that happened all at the same time one after another after another, and I think it was Justice Scalia who said in his opinion in Pennsylvania versus Casey that uh, people thought we would be influenced because this is in his opinion because they were protesting and marching, but we didn't we don't pay attention to marches. And I said to my students, well, if he didn't pay attention, how did he know they were marching? <laughs> I mean, he must have known, otherwise, I mean, hey. Uh, and it influenced O'Connor and it influenced Kennedy uh, to say the least, but it wasn't because there was one march, it was because it was a rolling kind of thing and there were some other activities related to uh, what happened at the White House and other places outside, uh, civil disobedience. The other thing is that you have to hook up your protest and your resistance with somebody who's in politics if it's about an issue a policy change that you want either the administration or somebody on the hill. there's always somebody, one or two people who you can get to introduce a bill or to do whatever it is and look up at them so that when your resistance works, then in fact you can get uh, that change the other thing is that you understand that the most important, well there's ingenuity in the media, do different things think of different things to do don't do the same thing over and over again because we have short attention spans. All of us, the media does. They know we do. And so you've got to keep thinking of different uh, variations. The other is that persistence. If I had to say what was the most important thing to keep in mind if you are resisting or protesting or whatever, it's that you must be persistent. You cannot, it's not a one-off. It takes time and energy, and you have to just keep, you can't give up and say, well, we should just shift and go after some other issue because we're not getting anywhere with this one. If you really believe in it and you really want to do that, you should keep working and figure out a way to, because people who have power always think you're gonna get tired and go away and they won't have to bother with you. I remember when JFK said and Bobby said that uh, the Civil Rights Movement and Martin and all of them, they weren't gonna do anything. They'd get tired after a few weeks. and We won't have to bother with them. <laughs> And they really didn't believe that. And they were like shocked that they just kept on doing, you know, they said, my goodness, these people are still doing this. Um, The other thing is that um, your tactics have to respond to whatever communications and technological change takes place. That doesn't mean that you're doing anything different. You can take advantage of it. When we were doing uh, various protests early on, we had mimeograph machines where your fingers would get blue or whatever it was from the ink uh, when you did it. And we had flyers and we had telephone trees and all kinds of stuff to try to communicate. Now you don't do that, and social media is good for communications, but it's also good to keep you under surveillance, and so you should keep that in mind. And for people who are celebrity seekers, well, they're always celebrity seekers in any movement. If the movement appears to be successful and is gaining traction and media visibility, somebody's gonna come who wasn't there in the beginning and decide to take over and be in charge and be the media voice of your movement. I mean, I've seen people actually come and grab a microphone and other people were talking and say to the press, this is I'm Joe, boom, and I'm doing this. And the problem with that is that they distort your message. And they often will say things that confuses the message that you have. So you have to politely. But join-ups, sometimes in movements, people are irritated when a whole lot of people want to join in. Because they say, these people, you know, they're newbies, and they don't know what we're talking about. We had that in the anti-Vietnam War movement when the movement became successful with all of the media coverage of the protests. And people from schools that we hadn't thought about uh, out in the Midwest, some other place other than Michigan and Wisconsin, (laughs) and Texas and places, decided they were going to get involved. And he said, these people don't know what the message is. They happen to, you know, embrace the flag. No, embrace them and educate them and let them join in with the movement. Now, what does this all have to do with uh, Trump and what's going on now? In American politics, what we have is what I call a push-pull phenomenon. Things go one way, and they go all the way over here, and then they come back, and they go over here. So you should never despair when you see that happening, because it happens inevitably. It has happened time and time and time again that it has happened in politics. The other thing is that, so Trump is one of those times when we're on the down side of, where progressive change is and having to fight back. The other thing is that politics and voting and running for office, which we talk about a lot today and are energized about the number of people who want to run. Politics is important, that kind of politics, electoral politics, but it's not sufficient. Just like marches are important, but they're not sufficient. Politics is important, but it's not sufficient. Protest is an essential ingredient of politics. It has been said a million ways by a million people and leaders of various types of leaders, that if you really want policy change, one of the things you have to do is what we call now we say it's protest is an essential ingredient of in politics. People often quote um, that quote about the arc of the moral universe is long, but it tends toward justice. And every time they do it, they say Martin Luther King said it. And when Martin said it, he would always say, as Theodore Parker said, because it was Theodore Parker who made it up, it wasn't him, and he always gave credit to people. And Theodore Parker was a Unitarian, 19th century Unitarian minister. And he was the one who said the moral arc of the universe is long, but it tends toward justice. And I think that's right. And and people have said it in different ways. Philip Randolph with the justice is never given it is exacted. Frederick Douglass, what did he say? Freedom without, people want freedom without struggle, want crops without plowing up the ground. They won't rain without the thunder and so on. You know, that's not how it is done. It's an evolving process. When Jimmy Baldwin, uh, James Baldwin, used to come to talk to us when I was an undergraduate student at Howard, uh, it was before he published a farming standard. And he would come around, he'd sit and talk with us uh, in uh, philosophy majors, uh, who were the little nerds like Stoker Carmichael and Ackland Lynch and uh, Corbin Cox, uh, the Snickers. We were all um, philosophy majors uh, with book bags on our shoulders, because one of our professors always had a book bag on his shoulder. Anyway, uh, and he would tell us, and we would talk about the rainbow sign, you know, and how, you know, it's water, that old spiritual. Uh, this time getting rid of evil and next time it'll be the fire next time and he would say then that uh, the, every generation has to make its own death in the wall of injustice which I firmly believe that somebody's got to go through the fire every time and so what protest is about and what resistance is about is going through the fire um, and um, if we do that then we can make the change that we see. Thank you very much. Now, if anyone has any questions or you want to testify to it, <laughs> or you want to ask me something or you want to criticize something, yes. Uh, Black Lives Matter is the development of the organization Black Lives Matter and what those three women did is one of the most important uh, social movements that existed at a time when it was very needed, very much needed. But as Wes Lowry uh, wrote in a piece that he has in the the, uh, Washington Post this morning, uh, black, unarmed black people are still being shot by police. And I'm just saying this with course I've been noticing. I know that it happens, but the media doesn't cover it the way it's used. And Wes asked why the media doesn't cover it in this piece. And he talks about people thinking about other things and this and this and this and this. And, this. and Black Lives Matter itself as an organization has responded to the Trump uh, Justice Department labeling of some black people as terrorists. I have gotten what name they put on them. Um, and the fact that they say they're after them to adjust their strategy. There's the platform and then there is their focus on the census which is coming up and other issues. There are about two or three other issues that they're focused on. Um, I think that somebody if not them should be focused on the issue of unarmed people being killed (laughs) and that despite the the threats by the administration that they will go after you if you do that and you keep talking about it because they of course support police whatever they do somebody needs to go through the fire and do it whether it's the three of them or somebody else i don't know but that issue needs Uh, full-time commitment to doing it, and I also worry about their energy becoming too dispersed. And I also think that it may be that they're tired. People get tired, you know, when you're doing a social movement, and I remember at the end when we got sanctions and, and, you know, uh, apartheid, and we were there, when I was there, when Nelson got out of prison, um, had gone there to raise hell to go see him in prison. But, then they decided to release it while I was there. But um, you get tired, and so you shift, and maybe there's a need for somebody else to come along and it's, it's so you can pass the torch. Julian Bond used to say that he'd been trying to pass the torch for about 10 years, and nobody would take it. And I've been trying, too. I've been trying for about 15 years to pass the torch to somebody else. You can't get anybody else take it because, you know, making a dent requires energy. Maybe they run out. I don't know if they're scared. Uh, But it's also the case that the public does tire of an issue. We know that. People have short attention spans. They go on to some other issue. Right now it's the Me Too movement. Pretty soon that'll be the end of that. and It'll be some other movement. That's why we need to get the gun control thing and strike in the next few months and keep the Persistence, going to get something done, because then some other thing is, you know, is going to happen. That's just the way yeah. things are. So I think it was a stroke of genius for them to do what they did at the time they did it. Yes.
3: So I got arrested uh, in March in the capital of There were about 50 of us, um, and it really wasn't covered. The protection. Mm. and then there was a of 60 of us that came back in June and did Mitch McConnell's office, and it exploded. But, like, we've been working for months beforehand. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on, like, why did we media pick up on that one and not the other one?
2: Okay, timing, timing, that's a good point you made. Yeah. Timing is absolutely crucial. Figuring out your timing when you do something in terms of whatever whatever else is going on so you can get media attention. When we decided to start the Free South Africa movement and we decided that three of us, me and Randall Robinson and Congressman Farnley, would ask for a meeting with the ambassador and they gave us some dates and one of the dates was the night before Thanksgiving. And we thought, that's a great date because the night before Thanksgiving We're going to sit in at the embassy. We're not going to leave after we meet with them. And it's the night before Thanksgiving. And on Thanksgiving, people are at home, are visiting relatives, and they're watching TV and whatever they're doing. And it's the night before, and there's not much news, and the cables all have to have news, and there's got to be news. It's a great time to have them, if they're stupid enough, to arrest us to go ahead and do it. We might be able to get the kind of media attention that we need to kickstart this thing. And we had lined up some people to get arrested the next day and the day after, but we didn't have anybody after that because we figured it will either catch fire or it won't. And so we did it then, the night before Thanksgiving, and it dominated international news all day, Thanksgiving Day us being taken out, put in the paddy wagon, taken to prison, to jail, staying overnight in prison, and coming out the next day and going up to the hill and announcing the formation of the Free South Africa Movement. If we had done that in the middle of a busy congressional session, while they were doing all kinds of other, I don't know what they'd do, depending on what was going on, we would have gotten, there had been people that had gone to the embassy before and staff tried to protest and do something. And they got, you know, like zip coverage of what they were doing. So timing is very crucial in figuring out when you're gonna do something and what else is going on there and how you're gonna do it. That's all I can say about it. So keep that in mind. Look to see what is gonna be going on. Christmas day is a good time. The night before Christmas is a good time to really do something. Because people are bored. They're visiting relatives, and sitting around, talking to uncle, somebody, of, and okay. Anybody else? Yes.
0: He, um, when you said that I hate Trump, is not, is not a movement. That's the way I felt about the, the Women's March right after he was elected. What, did they accomplish anything? What were they trying to accomplish? I didn't
3: really understand that.
2: Well, the Women's March, even though it didn't make a policy change, was important to first let people... Uh, um, purged themselves of their feelings of anger and hurt, which they did in those places I went to speak where they told me how they felt. Uh, That was important, and to come together to show a kind of solidarity. It made them feel better at a time when they didn't feel good. It also inspired some people to think about doing something else wherever they were, okay? Uh, So from that standpoint, But I always think that if you come to Washington to march or to protest or do whatever you want, you ought to have an issue. You ought to have something you're trying to get. Not just, I don't like George Bush, or I don't like whoever it is. uh, And that it's a mistake not to have an issue. I remember when Louis Farrakhan had his million man march. And one of the criticisms I made, and people said, you shouldn't be criticizing him. He's going to send the fruit of Islam after you. No, he's not. What Farrakhan likes me. I've known him forever. Next time I saw him, he walked up and hugged me in front of all these people. Oh, my dear sister, where have you been? Anyway, uh, I said, you guys didn't do anything. You came here. You didn't go up to the hill and ask anybody to do something. We had a million issues. We needed somebody to do something. Send those black men, proud and strong, up there to stand in front of somebody's office and say, do this or do that or whatever. And they didn't do it. They they said, you know, it was great symbolically because you got that many men to come and do it. The men felt better. It's all about feeling better. And it's symbolic. And some of them did go home and do a few things, whatever it was they came from. But to take not take advantage of being there, all those women, if they had all gone up to one of those congressmen, senators, or whoever you're a congressman, or whatever it is, and sat in their office and said, we want you to do X. I don't know what the X is. Somebody should have figured that out while they were doing it. That would have been very helpful, although I don't poo-poo that they needed to purge themselves of their feelings and to feel better about something. It's sort of like thumbing your nose at Trump. You're not my president, you know, and you feel better. <laughs> But actually, he is a, your president, whether you like it or not. Uh, did you have your hand up? Yes. I was just wondering if, uh, did you use any more of your reporting skills doing more
0: reporting
2: Did I ever report anything else? Yes. No, I started doing stuff instead of reporting on it. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Thing. Did you have another? Or was that it? No, it was it. Thank you. Yes. Could you uh, talk about how? populist ideas in terms of how it could fit into a movement uh, that is not divisive, <coughs> that they, you know, the, the, the individuals who perceive themselves anyway as being uh, taken over by some other people, whoever those enemies may be. Like for you to talk a little bit about that, if you could. Oh you mean about the use of populism uh, by some people. Well, populism has always in American history degenerated into divisiveness. The late nineteenth century when the populist movement and party actually existed and then you had a division in the southern populace around questions of race. So that's always been a problem in the populist movement. Right now we have millions of people in our country who believe that they have been overlooked economically. Many black people have thought forever they've been overlooked economically. It's not a new thing. But these uh, white people, feel that they have been overlooked economically and that their party has done them a disservice. And they are correct, they're not lying. I mean, that's in fact true. <laughs> uh, and, and therefore, they. whenever you feel that way about something, you make both valid and invalid complaints about why you're in the situation you're in, okay? Um, and it's hard sometimes to see through the invalidity to see the validity when they become anti-immigration, for example. It is indeed true, while we should welcome the stranger, and we can quote the Bible, or I can, or you can, uh, about the alien and the stranger among us and how we should give succor to the least of these and all the rest of it, that they, and that we are a nation of immigrants, as they say, um, but they see that some people, they believe, have taken jobs that they should have. And in fact, some people have taken jobs they should have. That's just true. And why? Because they were cheaper to hire and because employers prefer to hire them. That's a factual statement. Julius, William Julius Wilson, who was up there at Harvard for a while, used to be at the University of Chicago, and his graduate students did a whole big study going around the neighborhoods asking people why they didn't hire some people and why they hired other people. And they told them they preferred to hire illegal immigrants, or we call them undocumented people. And that they uh, preferred to because they would be scared and they could pay them whatever they wanted to. They were happy to pay and That's why they didn't want to hire anybody who was an American citizen. I mean, they just told them that that was why. So if you were an American citizen and they didn't hire you and you said, immigrants are taking my jobs, in fact, they were taking their jobs. And it wasn't right and it wasn't right what was happening to the immigrants. So it's sometimes hard sometimes hard to parse out the differences between the valid things people say that spill over, and some of it is not what you say but the way how you say it, you know, that makes it appear that you're anti something, that you don't like people or whatever. But it is a valid criticism to say that the economy does not serve most of our people well and that inequality is a great big fat problem in the United States, persistent inequality. And what you do about it is hard because with capitalism, capitalism requires inequality. And I said that on TV the other day, and they said that you're a socialist. I said, I'm not. They said, oh, you're a socialist. And I said, I'm just telling you, ask any economist. They'll say, you capitalism requires inequality. Somebody's got to be up here, somebody's got to be down. The question is who's going to be down here and who's going to be down here? and how you're going to smooth off the rough edges of capitalism. That's just a reality. And so um, until we get parties doing something about that problem, politicians who are elected and who promise they're going to do something. When I was in the Clinton uh, Commission during the Clinton administration, and NAFTA, North American Free Trade, was up and all the energy was spent to get it approved. And labor told them that it's gonna create more inequality and jobs are gonna go and this is gonna happen. And they were determined to get NAFTA passed. And it has some advantages. You always have this balance. Do we want cheap goods to come so that people who do have some money can buy cheap goods or do we want goods that are made here so that people can have jobs, you know? So, and then you say, well, if they don't have jobs, they can't buy anything. So, I don't know where the balance is, but populism has always degenerated, if I may put that uh, in that way, uh, in that way. The other thing that you didn't ask me about, but I thought about while I was talking Somebody asked me the other day. They said, "Why is it that the opioid crisis is a public health crisis, and the addiction by black folks and brown folks is a is a criminal justice problem?"
1: They said, "Why?
2: What? 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 What happened?" <laughs> I mean, they say uh, I heard somebody talking on TV last night say, it's a public health crisis and. We must treat it as a public health crisis. Treat people, not criminalize them. And I'm thinking, wait, whoa. We've been saying that for years. And now, all the, and they still aren't talking about treating the kind of drug addiction that black and brown people have as a public health crisis. And criminal justice reform. What is What is the answer? You know the answer. Why is that?
0: Media coverage. Is it's that what it yeah. yeah. is? Right yeah.
2: They're both public health. I mean, it's, the whole thing is a public health the crisis. The media
0: has picked up on opioid. It's the end thing. It's middle class and Caucasian who are now the
2: victims. And so now it's a public health crisis. Right. But why can't they just say we were wrong? But the whole thing is a public health crisis.
1: Oh, really, I don't think they do. I huh. think they believe that they have to
0: define the dark people and they go to prison for the same thing mm-hmm. that whites are getting help with a public health approach. I mean, our prisons just skyrocketed with black and brown men and women,
2: which is crazy.
3: Totally.
2: Yeah. yeah, so anyway, I'll tell them that answer next time somebody asks me. Yes, one more. Yes.
3: So, so um, I, your message about needing a point was well received, and my question is for you as a constitutional historian. Do you think that the uh, women's movement would be better served with the reintroduction of the ERA as their goal?
2: Um, I don't really think that the ERA is going to be uh, added to the Constitution. And I also think, and even Ruth Bader Ginsburg believes this now that if you use the 14th Amendment the way it's been used and uh, interpreted the way courts have started to interpret it, you can probably accomplish most of the things. Many of them have already been accomplished in the law. Um, And what besets women now, a lot of the stuff that happens, is not because it's legal, most of it's illegal, (laughs) but it happens anyway. Uh, because it's either not enforced or it's not disclosed. So I happen to think that it probably, uh, it's time has come and probably gone, but it's symbolic,
0: that's the main thing. Yes? It's, it's not symbolic in a lot of other countries of this world, mm-hmm. and it seems to me, I mean, the media's not paying attention to it, so I take all your other points about how could you ever get a rise to the top? Right. Uh, but my, my concern Oh, and in the other countries, they, some of
2: the other countries, they don't have interpretations of something like our 14th Amendment right. that would give the protections that have been elaborated. They don't have that. Yeah, but we are a member of the UN, which sure. says there's an equal rights amendment. Thank you and should be allowed to join? I'm, not, I'm not opposed to an equal rights amendment. I, mean, I just don't think there's going to be one added to the Constitution. And on my list of things that I work on, mm-hmm. it's not at the top of my list. Working for poor people is at the top. <coughs> Trying to reduce inequality and do something about poverty is at the top.
0: But our, doesn't that include a big up at the top of women?
2: Sure. But what I want to do for them, I don't need the ERA to do. Okay. I want to give them some more
0: money. Well, what I would like to know is uh, with uh, resistance and history, um, how to deal with it now that there are more than 60 laws that are either on the books or being pushed at the federal level or at state levels that would criminalize resistance. Well, you expect that. I'm talking. About, I'm not talking about going to jail overnight. I'm talking about, for example, Greenpeace dealing with millions and millions of dollars to resist. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that what they've done to the J-20 people. They're they're saying it's going to be illegal. You're a terrorist if you walk in a public street.
1: Sure, you I know, know with, yes, I understand what you're talking so about. So
0: yeah. people are now, they're no longer just resistors or I understand. protesters. You're going to be labeled as a terrorist. I understand. And you're going to be going to jail for 20 to 50 years. Yeah, well, what your you're life. going
2: to do, that is why my good friend Anthony Romero and all the people at the ACLU who have been have contributed the contributions up to Gazoo now have staffed up They've, like, tripled, quadrupled the legal staff at the ACLU to bring lawsuits to protect people and to attack all of these statutes that you're talking about. That's exactly what they've done because they violate people's civil liberties.
0: Absolutely. Well, the the animal rights people haven't won. One's in North Dakota and South Dakota, and now what they're doing in Louisiana as far as resisting in these environmental things, the uh, laws are calling them like geo-terrorists. It's no longer just a civil liberty.
2: I don't expect, I expect people to pass laws who are opposed to movements to try to criminalize and... To terrorize people who are engaged in resistance. I also expect our litigation arms to bring lawsuits and to send lawyers to protect people. And if they're not doing that, they've been given all these contributions. That's what they're supposed to be doing to protect people. They don't have enough money to protect all these people. Well, let's give them some more. Well, Why
0: shouldn't we just have a way that we can have a right to resist, should there be a civil liberty that says as a citizen you have a right to resist? You do have a right to resist.
2: That's what I'm saying. You have a right to under the Constitution. You have a right to petition the government. You have a right to express your point of view, both physically and in words. You have a right to do all of that as long as you don't engage in violence, okay? And if, and the ACLU and other organizations that get my money and other people's money <laughs> to, in fact, hire lawyers to protect people is supposed to see that that right is vindicated and go to court for people. And they are going to court for some people. I know that. They and are. have to
0: have judges who see it that way. Which
2: means we need to be working on judges. People yeah. spend so little time. One of my frustrations all these years is I've been trying to get people who are progressives to pay as much attention to judges as they do to other issues, and almost always I fail. Because they don't seem to understand that if you don't pay attention, who's getting appointed to the courts. Now we say we're happy because some of the judges are deciding immigration cases that we want to. There are many, many more judges who are deciding all kinds of cases in ways we don't want them to. Right. And they're there for life. And Trump is now appointing a whole bunch yeah. of them, just like Reagan yeah. did. Reagan did the same thing. He had more judges appointed than anybody up to his time. And every single one of them tried to cut all the different protections that were there. And these guys and women, most of them are men, are going to do exactly the same thing. But I can't get five people in a room to discuss how we're going, what we're going to do about judges and what actions we're going to take other than just sending testimony up to the Hill saying, please don't confirm these people.
0: Well, Not if you're enough. serious, I'll come and I'll bring four other people.
2: Okay. <laughs> Got it. We'll talk about it afterwards. Okay, one more. Anything else? There's another one. That's it. Yes,
1: now, all right, yes, Doc, uh, go that ahead. That was my concern, that was my concern, is the power structure, because actually, people fail to realize why Trump was elected. The Supreme Court was on the borderline between the ages of our Supreme Court and the diversity of it. And um, if Trump stays in a second term, we can kind of guarantee that there will be more electees, not in the favor of the people, but of, of favor of policy for the uh, people that want more restrictions opposed to resistance.
2: Right, and even before he's up for re-election, right now there are slates of judges going up fast as you can see, and they're passing them just as fast as they can, hoping that they get all the courts packed before the, before the election, the midterm election. And all I can get, and those of us who are trying to do this, get the groups to do, the progressive groups, is to set up testimony saying, you shouldn't confirm these people, this is bad, and send out a press release. <laughs> and I'm saying that it requires more vigorous attention and action now because by the time Trump is up again, they will already impact all the courts. Go up to the senators who are there who can be moved if somebody will go talk to them or go protest in their offices or start back in their state. You don't even have to go there. And go to their local districts and mobilize people and say, we know that you're about to vote for so and so. They figure nobody knows what they're doing. And I think that's right. Most people don't know. Uh, And say, we don't want you to, in fact, uh, support that person. Vote against them or filibuster them or do something. I don't care what you do, but don't do it. And that's just as important as going to Schumer's house about the budget or going somewhere about it. In fact, it's more important because it lasts for years and years and years. And you don't have to go there. Just stay where you are and go to whoever and adopt a state There's this whole organization of women who are adopting states, they're doing it. If their state has good guys, for senators, they adopt another state that doesn't. And then they, about other issues, they go there and protest. Somebody needs to do that about these court appointments because there's slate after slate after slate going up. Right now, as we're sitting here, uh, awful people who are getting uh, in in the federal district courts And the courts of appeal are as important as the Supreme Court. They're the first line of defense. So, thank you very much.